Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 42 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herzo, HRV Homes. And we're joined today by our guest. Uh, ben Ueda, former architect with uh, Zero Energy Design. And now I make YouTube videos and share design that way. Nice. That's awesome. cool. So homemade modern. Correct. And uh, how... So I feel like we should start with a quick discussion yeah, a quick on bio blurb, right? or, or COVID-19. I just thought, you know, it's, oh, Mar- it's March 10th. This will it's, probably air in like two weeks. So the data will be completely irrelevant. Totally. <laughs> we, may, we may be on lockdown. I'm going to make a prediction. I heard this today from a good friend. So real estate in Paris, Los Angeles, and Boston is safe and will do well uh, under these circumstances because people will be looking for places to park money that uh, is safe. Oh, my goodness. Versus <laughs> elsewhere, yeah, I mean, you're not going to uh, maybe not there. They feel more confident than in the market, in the stock market, or well, what other are you talking about? But what about other uh, real estate markets? Maybe it's just that it's very tough to build in those markets, and so we will not oversupply. These are the only markets that will not be affected. Mark's <laughs> prediction. You heard it here. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if whether or not it's going to have an overall impact on the consideration of density in general. I think people that are living in a more suburban environment are feeling much safer than those that are living in a very dense environment. And, you know, with, given with the, some of the, the challenges of density relating to affordability, I wonder if this is going to be one more thing that just kind of pushes a little bit, a little bit back towards people reconsidering how desirable cities actually are. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and truly, we're, we kind of have this momentum at this moment for more density, and this might be a hindrance to that. It was interesting. I, I gave a talk recently and was talking to some architecture professors that have a strong background in urban design. And when I was a student, cities and density were always presented as this path to affordability. And it's kind of doesn't seem like that worked out that way. I think people didn't really understand how much value is created with density and how much complications to it, which necessitate a higher level of regulation, which then eliminates a lot of the affordability. And then when you see something like this, where you're like, oh, wait, we do have these massive population centers and we've kind of been skating by and not dealing with things like this. Um, so again, I, I, have, I don't think it's going to make a major impact either way, mm-hmm. but it's interesting to sort of project out and think about the things that we, uh, that are actual liabilities that uh, hadn't been sort of thoroughly considered. Like just seeing like how rarely they clean public transportation. They're like, Oh, now we're going to clean the trains twice a week. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, you weren't doing that already? <laughs> Everybody wash your hands. Wait, you guys weren't doing that already? <laughs> I exactly. guess on the, on the flip side, you can say, though, that if you're living in more rural areas, yes, you are maybe less prone to contracting something. But if you do contract it, the healthcare in those areas is True. much worse than that in more yeah. dense urban areas. So it's mm-hmm. kind of. Did you guys see the TED talk that? Bill Gates did a few years ago where he said, if 10 million people are going to die outside of a war, this is going to be how, and it was a virus. Hmm, no. Huh. Yeah. Speaking of TED Talks, I did that on purpose. Segway. Ben, you did a TED Talk. We watched it. TEDx. Big TEDx. TEDx. Excuse uh, me. TEDx. Uh, yeah. What's that, the difference? I Sorry, I, I'm, I'm playing uh, naive so here. So TEDx is the, the local franchise version of it. TEDx into and of itself is not a great or prestigious honor. There are some amazing ones and there's some absolute garbage ones that may or may not involve crystals. (laughs) So uh, yeah, if you see something that was done by the sort of main TED organization, 
that means that those speakers were thoroughly vetted and on a pretty high level. Uh, TEDx, you know, basically anyone can apply for a localized TEDx franchise. I was asked to speak at the Jamaica Plain one when I first did my my first development project, a three-family uh, a building there, and uh, yeah, so I, I I did one and I and it and it worked out pretty good. But it's it's interesting that if you go to a TEDx event, a lot of them are great. Like the ones in Cambridge are amazing because there's just so much talent to pull from. The one in Jamaica Plain, uh, you know, there's the pickings were a little slimmer. Um, there was some really good talks and and some okay talks, but yeah. So, you know, I try to do some sort of public talk about once every year to year and a half to try to just update, you know, it makes me sort of basically do my, my whole resume in about, you know, 30 minutes to an hour (laughs) and kind of update everybody about, you know, what I've done so far and what I'm looking at next. So one really cool thing you've been doing lately is the Container House Project out in um, California. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what the genesis was and how it's going? Yeah, so I built a shipping container house and I did it not because I think shipping containers are a great way to build buildings. I did it actually because of the opposite. I had seen so much just stupid media on shipping container house can solve homelessness or shipping container house could be the key for affordable housing. And that kind of content drives me crazy. One, because affordable housing is really important. And it's a really challenging thing. And people keep getting their hopes raised by 3D printing or shipping containers or these really novel silver bullet things. And uh, in my experience in architecture and development, that's not how the industry works. Anytime a client comes to me and says, oh, there's this hempcrete stuff, which is going to save us a ton of money on the thing. I'm like, you don't know that. You just heard that. (laughs) Uh, And so what I wanted to do with the shipping container house was uh, one really embrace the challenge of building with shipping containers and then make a documentary series that actually shows how, how fun it is and how interesting it is. And it was a really cool process to, to investigate and experiment with, but also how it's not this thing that saves anything in particular when you do it a sort of legally permitted uh, manner. And I think what a lot of the misinformation came from is they were looking at, people were looking at kind of DIY houses that weren't permitted in places like Australia. And it's being like, this guy built this for like 15 grand. And I'm like, yeah, but I mean, I could build the house out of two by fours for 15 grand too, mm-hmm. if I didn't have to deal with any permits, inspections, regulations, energy code, fire sprinklers, and all those kind of things. So we did a, a very painstaking documentary. So far, uh, we have six episodes out. They range from sort of eight to, to 20 minutes in length. Uh, they're averaging about 3 million views each, which is about twice as much as what any uh, HGTV show does, even their most popular ones. You guys going to be and on Netflix next year? Uh, we're thinking about it, but Netflix doesn't give you the numbers and that hurts us with like sponsors and our other sort of partnerships. So I was only right now, kidding, but that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. Yeah. But yeah, and fundamentally, we believe that people are actually interested in the technical details. They're interested in how much things cost. How do you get permits? How do you get around these like nagging little code things and all that kind of stuff? Whereas whenever we talk to television partners, they, they assume that the audience is really dumb and only wants big flashy before and afters and then like peppy personalities that never get into any real issues. I think people are interested in septic systems versus sewage. I think they're interested in the cost effectiveness of going grid tied with solar or going off the grid. I think they're interested in, you know, 
will the and you know how do you how do you reinforce the shipping container once you cut the corrugation and make up for you know what was supposed to be uh, structurally designed as a complete box once you break that box what do you have to do to actually get it back up to a point where a structural engineer feels comfortable stamp, uh, stamping it so what we've shown is just all these like little detail steps it's really dry it's really straightforward but we do it in a really fast paced way and what we found was that there's a massive audience that's really hungry for just straightforward information on novel building systems. See, that's really interesting because we go back and forth on that type of stuff all the time. We feel that, oh, who do we need to bring on to the podcast, you know, to kind of create the buzz or what are people interested in talking about? You know, we did a we did an episode, just the three of us last week about site work, excavation, foundation, and afterwards, you know, I'd say all of us were like, wow, that was really dry and boring. And who's going to listen to that? But to your point, I get I guess there is an audience out there for that type of stuff. Yeah, it's more of a search audience than a browse and click, right? It's uh so but you know, if there's sort of a YouTube link or version to that, that's that's a place where that kind of stuff does really well. Or if you create sort of uh, you know, individual web posts for those dry but technical episodes. When I was searching for just doing my research on the shipping container house, there was a lot of uncredible information. People saying, oh, I think I could do this. But there was no one sort of saying, here's why I reinforced the window openings with angle steel versus square tube, right? It was only like, I did this and it sort of worked. So particularly when there's uh, information that narrows something down towards a conclusion and, this, and, and provides references for where decisions were sourced, Creating a dedicated web page for that particular uh, episode with a lot, you know, and basically transcripting it and putting all that copy into it, people will find that and it'll slowly get referenced on all the message boards, Reddit, and things like that for people that are looking for that information. I get asked all the time is, hey, do you have a good detail for a cold weather slab on grade foundation? And people are searching all around. They'll spend a couple hours doing a Google image search, but they won't find anything that conclusive. They'll be, they'll find sort of an example of like, oh, and this ICF website sort of had one, but I don't want to use ICF. And buildingscience.com had this one. Oh no, and I can't do that. So, putting that information in a place where people can search it is incredibly valuable. And that kind of traffic, even if it's relatively small, is inherently influential because you're you're helping people make decisions on that are about to spend you know ten thousand dollars on concrete work. So I think. Uh, to change subject slightly, one thing that you guys do really well on Homemade Modern is make sure that your your designs are something which is really special. It doesn't ever look like it just came off the shelf of a big box store. Each design is kind of unique and cool, but is still somehow affordable. Like you find a way to do this so it isn't cast in gold and cost a billion dollars. And that's sort of the name of the game when it comes to being a good market rate developer. We're always trying to do something with a cool design element to it uh, that might look like it came off of out of, I don't know, Waterworks, but it's really Y brand instead. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you do that. It's kind of a magic trick. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get a lot of ideas from the food industry and I think that's like a great place to source really broad concepts. So when I saw like Chipotle, sweet greens and these fast casual restaurants, I was like, this is brilliant, right? They're at a lower price point than Applebee's, slightly higher price point than McDonald's, but better quality food, probably quality of food wise, that's comparable to an Applebee's or something like that. And so 
They do that by making really smart trade-offs that reflect what people actually value. People don't, they don't really value that sizzling uh, fajita platter. They don't really yeah. value the, the individual service and that kind of, they want it faster. And so they kind of do it cafeteria style and they've created, you know, or repopularized a genre of restaurant that reflects current values for food. So I try to think like, well, what's the equivalent of that in design? I look at things like the Ace Hotel, which is a, you know, an expensive hotel, but one that isn't trying to look like the W Hotel. The W Hotel, which was really popular in like the early 2000s, and I think is like totally dated now, was very flashy. It was a lot of terrazzo, a lot of translucent paneling, all things that are expensive and not DIY friendly. When you look at the way sort of interior design and, and style is going, it's going much towards more casual and much more kind of whole materials, simple things. And then there's really dramatic moments that people can take Instagram photos in front of. And so when I sort of look at how do I make things affordable, I look at first, what do people want? And then where does that intersect with opportunities that can reduce labor? And you guys know that labor is a big part of construction. I don't like compromising on material quality. So instead, I try to figure out how do we take ideas like minimalism, which is a high-end idea, and translate that to low labor and come up with really simple designs that people like. And that way, we're not qual uh, uh, sacrificing material quality, just adding simplicity, which intersects nicely with, uh, with contemporary taste. So it's really just laying out all those things and being like, where's the Venn diagram? <laughs> What's hot and popular intersects with, oh, where do we save 10 hours of fine carpentry labor and replace that with four hours of rough carpentry labor? And that's how you make it affordable. That's cool. Yeah. I agree with you entirely about like sort of the W hotel analogy to me. I think that especially our generation doesn't want the big hood ornament on the car, right? Like it doesn't want to be ostentatious and flashy, but, um, you know, minimalism, sleek designs. Our generation grew up sort of realizing that you don't have to wear a suit every day to be really successful. Right. And they're also the generation that started valuing where food came from in addition to what it looks like. Right. And so I think those values are also being uh, exhibited in design. The concrete floors are one of the most popular flooring types for young people, right? Because mm. they like industrial aesthetic. They like things that don't look like, you know, the traditional honey-colored wood. And things that, uh, you know, older builders and developers think had to be covered up actually add value to the right demographic. Yeah, like an exposed structural element. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. And. You know, one thing that I admire about your work is it's always kind of innovative and, and new and different. So in, to make another analogy, like when we're doing one development to the next one, even if it, my spec was successful, the paint color worked with that vanity, with that light fixture, like I really like to keep changing it up. And it, it kind of gets harder and harder. And sometimes, you know, you feel like maybe it's been done before or everything's been done before. So how do you make sure that you, you keep everything um, constantly fresh? Fresh, yeah. Yeah, one is just experiment. And so I, I use Pinterest a lot for gathering ideas. And what is, what's interesting is you'll see, you'll see kind of a trend of people that like this thing also like this thing. Um, and so you get some really good ideas for how to match things. One thing that we've been using a lot of is just exposed edge plywood. Once like, you know, shows like Mad Men became popular and really kicked off that, that, that interest in mid-century modern style, we went through that style and said, okay, what are, what are our takeaways from this? What are our, our not just taking away from aesthetically, because that's the obvious stuff, but what about this style lends itself to affordability 
And we saw all the Ames furniture with those exposed edges. And we're like, huh, we can make built-ins and furniture that we don't have the edge band. Right away, that knocks off a ton of labor. And people will instantly identify it as this really hot trend. Cool, let's ride this out, right? Now I think uh, mid-century modern is sort of on the decline or it's sort of reached its peak popularity. I don't think it'll get more popular from here. I think it'll just go down, but always be like one of those main staples. So now we're starting to look at some Art Deco stuff, which is becoming really trendy. Certainly not ready for the mainstream consumer, particularly in the Midwest. But in the coastal cities, you're starting to see that trickle into hotels uh, and really cutting edge hospitality places. So we're doing the same thing. We're looking like, what's the affordable way to do kind of Art Deco, whether it's details out of concrete, marble, things like that. What about like the Australian Scandinavian style? I think those are classics, right? Because any of the minimalism ones will always be, will be there for, you know, there'll always be an audience. It's like the, it's funny with my friends that really like to get really hype about technology and how the future is going to be wildly different. I always ask them at what point will a hundred years from now, will people still wear denim jeans, (laughs) right? And then a hundred years from then, will they still wear them, right? There's certain things that are that are so unoffensive and so stylistically safe that they'll always kind of be around. And that's how I feel about some of the more minimalism and some of the Scandinavian design ideas. It doesn't mean they'll be the hottest thing or the best place to, to put in value, but they'll always be a audience for that. Just as I think as our, our denim will continue to become more synthetic and have more, you know, nylon or rayon mm-hmm. or, or, or spandex in it to, to make the denim higher performance, but the idea of denim isn't going away anytime soon. And I think the same thing with the more classic sort of designs. And that's to to Mark's point, that's as a spec builder, that's kind of what we look for, right? Because we want to cater to the broad, most, you know, the largest audience possible and kind of sticking with that classic minimalist design and then maybe adding a few pops of that you know, new trendy stuff that people are using. That's kind of how you balance out the the hot stuff with the, you know, more traditional stuff and how you can balance your budget that way as well. When I do developments, I try to think asymmetrically, right? Like I know that most of my decisions are going to be towards reducing my cost. And then, but I don't want to make a building that looks cheap. So I, how do I supplement? How do I save out of like 10 different categories and then put a lot of money back into one, right? Hmm. So I'm still lower to overall cost, but doing that. So like out here in Joshua Tree, spending an extra $200 to do a really nice concrete fire pit, it's just going to be something It's outside, it's easy. We'll often make the forms and then after we pour the foundation slabs, just take the leftover, if there's any leftover concrete in the truck, which there almost always are, is, just dump that into there and, and knock it out. So we're not even oh, making cool. material costs. We have the concrete workers all there. Uh, it's just a little bit of extra site work to, or form work uh, to get that ready. But it's one of those things that's a, you know, a couple hundred dollars at the most. And just people really re- remember it. And if they were to try to hire someone to do it after the fact, it would cost them probably $1,000 or more. We'll try to figure out like, uh, how to just tweak designs a little bit. So out here where you know, the sun is just really brutal on decks, We'll do large format concrete pavers that we cast in place and then small accents of cedar on that. So the concrete pavers are really low cost per square foot 
and by themselves could be a little monotonous, but then when you float a, sleet, a cedar slab over it, you start to get these overlapping things and it starts to look again like a really high end sort of hospitality type uh, place. So we're always looking for, for just, you know, how do we strip away the cost and then how do we give back a little bit in things that will be remembered? I don't want to add cost to anything that isn't memorable. Yeah. I, I love it. Like what I wrote down when you said that, remember it, because in my mind, like our buyers, our consumers think often in terms of stories. And I know that they are likely to buy when they come for a second showing and they grab their significant other and they go, look what Mark did over here. This was the reason for, it. you know, TVs aren't good over fireplaces. And so for that reason, we did this asymmetrical design using granite and uh, or silestone over here in a fireplace. And then we put the TV here with a built-in millwork uh, feature. So it's like the budget does need to be asymmetrical, like you described, which I like, but it definitely needs to have a lot of thought as to why you spiked the budget in that one spot. It can't be just a uh, an arbitrary thing. Right. So I, I think of it as like, if you had like 20 bucks to make, a, make dinner for two, you could go get like a really good ribeye, some rice and a vegetable. Or if you had nothing in the fridge, you could get hamburgers, buns, cheese, lettuce, tomato, pickles ketchup and mustard and probably spend more than the $20. So you're getting a lower quality meal just because you're trying to have all these average things where the value is in spending asymmetrically a lot on the main featured ingredient, just enough to get it by around there and what is going to be more memorable uh, at the end, right? So an example like that for development is, you know, let's say you are going with like a pretty, you know, you're doing like, you know, a three bedroom spec house, right? three bedroom, two and a half bath. I would spend a lot, like maybe I'd go sort of waterworks level for the master mm-hmm. bathroom. Yeah. But I might go like this sort of builder level white subway tile for the kids' bathrooms. Sure. Right. Yeah. Like just go real serviceable, really, really durable, uh, no nonsense, things that'll never become out of style. Go real conservative there and then go, you know, Way really overboard. Really go for it for the 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 part that really matters. Cause again, those are the decision makers. But it's like you don't want to go, you know, just all off the rack saying like, oh, this is my price point. This is my expected demographic. So I just want to kind of hit the average source, everything from the kind of middle range, right? If the client really loves Waterworks, but their budget is like a level below that, but above like Home Depot, don't split that middle. Give them exactly what they want in the master bathroom, but give them the Home Depot stuff and the other ones, right? Make room for it there rather than just sort of average it all out. And make sure that you introduce that element of surprise. Because I think that's what what kind of delights. The wow. Yeah. Dan, you always say kitchens and baths always always have the most value. But are there areas where developers and, and even retail clients just are focusing on the wrong things? Like if you had a top three of where just it doesn't make any sense and it won't last, it won't have that, you know, timeless element to it. Are there three that come off the top of your head? I don't tell other people what makes sense to me, right? Because like if they're making money and doing it, like congrats to them. And there's so many ways to play this game. What I think are really interesting, the, the opportunities that are available to everybody that are really interesting are particularly the ones that uh, relate to sort of changing demographical profiles. People are working at home more. They're having smaller families. Aesthetic taste is becoming more casual. People are more concerned with where materials are sourced from and they want like certain lifestyle niches, right? So when I was developing my three-unit building in Jamaica Plain, 
So each each unit was about a thousand square feet. And when I was sort of talking to the banks that were going to finance it and you know also sort of doing the design, all the comps were saying, well, these need to be two bedroom, two bath, or two bedroom, one and a half bathroom. And I was like, huh, if I did that at these sort of square footages, that makes sense. That seems to be the most popular. But if I do lofts, I don't have to do secondary egress because it's within 50 feet from any one point into that. So I knew that separate set of staircases, the fire stairs, one, it would eat up a ton of the, of the FAR. And then two, it's a lot of cost that is never actually adding value or being used. So I talked to the bank and they're like, well, lofts aren't as desirable. Lofts aren't as popular. People aren't buying lofts at the same rate. And I got, you know, I immediately said, well, that's just incredibly faulty logic. You're not, you're, you're comparing, uh, you're not comparing supply and demand, right? So in reality, lofts were going for in Jamaica Plain at a higher per square foot cost hmm. and are cheaper to build because less interior finishes. Now, there's a way lower supply of them. So the total sales numbers of lofts in Jamaica Plain is really low, but that's not a reflective of demand. That's reflective of supply. Can you just break down what, what a loft is? for? So a loft is uh, just one big space with uh, very minimal interior partitions. Cool. So, with the th- so I ended up building a one-bedroom apartment on the first floor. And then two lofts with, you know, the bathrooms enclosed, but just, you know, completely open plan, living room, bedroom, kitchen, all just one. And they're huge. I mean, a thousand square foot for just a big studio. But the loft ended up selling. So I put the loft on the market and the one bedroom apartment on the market just to see which one. I only wanted to sell one because then I kept, you know, Mm -hmm. two of the units to rent. And I got a premium. I got $50,000 more for the, the loft and way more people were interested in that. So again, it's not because lofts are more popular. Way more people are looking for one bedroom or two bedroom apartments, but the supply of them is so low that the people that want lofts will pay extra for it and they're cheaper to build. So therefore, way better investment for me as that, at that particular moment in time as a developer. That's really interesting. There's a strong economics lesson in there. Yeah. I mean, every time we're looking at deals, we're saying, well, what Dan and I just did this yesterday. Well, what's our bedroom bathroom count have to be? Kind of put that on its head and said, no, there's another formula out there. Don't, don't look at what everybody else is doing. Don't look at what nobody's doing, but look at what people haven't done enough of perhaps. Right. Be, be the vegan restaurant, right? Like there, there's way more meat eaters than there are vegans, but vegans really want vegan food. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> and they're easy to market to, too. When you just put, when you just try to hit the ball down the middle and go for average, you know, it's, it's dumb saying, but it's like having your, uh, your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer, you know, on average, you're comfortable, but you know, you didn't, does that even make that. sense <laughs> to this sense. conversation? I'm trying to see if it, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but again, like that, that decision on lofts, it came from a desire to get rid of that secondary egress and really focus on cost reduction. And it was a way to sort of perfectly marry cost reduction to adding value. I don't think we ever... Do we even talk about what homemade modern is? Oh, we should step... We can go back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we always do this. Because <laughs> I, I think we were talking about everything. But so, so tell us a little bit about what homemade modern is and how you got into it. So yeah, homemade modern is the, the name of our website and YouTube channel. Uh, we have about... 1.1 million subscribers to the YouTube channel. And that's our primary way of distributing design ideas. My background is in architecture. I'm the co-founder of Zero Energy Design there in Boston, which does really exceptional uh, high-end custom residential work with a big focus on sustainability. 
I love architecture. I got a little disillusioned by this sort of service part of architecture where you know you're you're so catering to the whims of very wealthy people, which is fine. It's a noble service and a great profession, but just wasn't what I was interested in personally. So I wanted to figure out how do I how do I design stuff affordably and still get paid? Basically, how do I design for people that can't afford to hire me? And the idea of uh, distributing design as a type of media monetizes marketing is what came to mind. And what I sort of saw was that if you if you publish a video saying, here's how to make a, oh, here's a good example, a wood-fired hot tub, right? People are like, huh, and maybe I don't, I probably won't build that, but I'm kind of curious in how somebody would build a wood-fired hot tub. Can I so tell you, particular... I used one of those in South America and almost burned my legs off? <laughs> yeah. <you gotta laughs> There's no moderation. A, it isn't, you know. Gotta put an sc- uh, anti-scald valve uh, <laughs> on there. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. So I just got like a stock tank for like, you know, 150 bucks, some, some copper tubing, wrapped that around a sort of a fire pit and, and did that. And then a video like that gets viewed 5 million times, right? And so that drives a ton of traffic to people going to Tractor Supply to buy the stock tank, people going to McMaster Car to buy the, the copper coils. So it's a very cool way to make media that people actually want to see that has sort of calls to action inherently built in. So we've done DIY kitchen projects where you can build out the whole kitchen for less than $3,000. And it's fantastic. Uh, you know, People can really see a way to supplement their own labor for what is a very expensive part of a home renovation or home construction project. And that's how we sort of create value. And then that allows us to partner with brands like Home Depot, Ryobi, QuickCrete, BMW, and many other mores where... We're including their products, their services into our designs. And it's kind of the nicest way to do commercials. We're making commercials that people actually want to watch and uh, that teach them how to do something for their home. So you're saying we, so I'm assuming now you have a team of people that work with you. You know, when when you start- Very small team. Three people. Three people. Okay. (laughs) But you were doing everything yourself at first, right? Yeah. First, uh, I was doing everything myself at first. Then I hired my young sister, Jessie, uh, to sort of be my assistant and helper. And uh, then I have like someone that does a lot of like graphic design work, web posting, stuff like that. We expanded up to five people for a while, which was fine. But it, it was one of those situations where it, it, the more people you have as a company, the more the company starts to serve those employees, not the other way around. So I always want to avoid these kind of tail wagging the dog situations where I primarily want to be flexible to focus on whatever creative ideas that I'm most interested at that moment. And when you have a high burn rate or a large staff, you tend to do things that keep everybody occupied rather than what you think is actually going to drive the business forward. So now I do more. I'll hire, even though I have to pay extra for it, I'll hire you know, temporary staff when I'm doing a really big project, right? So we're getting ready for another construction project. We're building the the ADU laws uh, changed in California to meet this sort of housing shortage here. So we're going to be doing a documentary series on building a uh, an accessory dwelling unit from scratch. For that, I'll hire, you know, additional cameramen and editors and stuff like that. You're paying a lot more per hour. How about a garage conversion? Have you thought we're about working that? on one of those too? The content isn't, uh, there's already a lot of content for garage conversions out there. There isn't good content for building from scratch and showing the permitting process, particularly one that reflects the new sort of statewide setback laws that totally supersede the local laws. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing that they did. Um, 
but they really need to encourage people to, you know, there's so many suburban lots out here and a lot of the lots are really big. It's a great way to add density and basically turning, you know, a uh, single family zoning into two unit apartment buildings. So that'll be the big one. And that's when I sort of expand for the project, but I try to keep my sort of core team really minimal. And that way I can just be like, huh, if, you know, if someone pitches me like a really cool project and involves traveling and being out of the office for a while, uh, I can do that. Going back to that ADU real quick. So, cause I'd never heard this before. Usually ADU is associated with existing space in your house, attic or basement or Mark, like you said, garage. So Ben, you were saying that it's all, it's, it's, is it detached or? Yeah, basically like a guest house. Got it. So the affordable housing, I think it's not the sexiest political topic, but it's becoming a really powerful one here in, in California, particularly Southern California, to the point where, you know, there's a whole bunch of legislation passed trying to make it desperately trying to make it easier. And again, cities are not the answer or they proven as not being great at doing this so far. And, you know, it's amazing the amount of people I meet in Los Angeles, couples where they each make like between like 70 and 90,000 have, you know, a pretty healthy combined income. They can't afford to buy anything or, or even their rental options are, are very limited. So we need to drastically increase supply. We need to start developing in some more interesting areas and really build cool communities for people that do have the luxury of digitally commuting. And those are all sort of development projects that we're looking for in, in the next like five years. But in this year, we're really focusing on accessory dwelling units as a way to increase supply in suburban zoned areas. Um, so yes, yeah, if you just look all, all there's I think five uh, bills statewide that all were aimed at facilitating and increasing the amount of ADUs that are built. And those all went live January 1st in California. Very interesting. You know, getting back to the, uh, I know we were kind of joking about it at the start of the the episode with the coronavirus. I think one of the potential effects of this and everybody quarantining, self-quarantining, self-quarantining and the employers saying, you know, if you're not vital or necessary, you can, you can work from home. I think it's going to really potentially have a longer lasting effect where they say, well, the company didn't shut down. Maybe it's like the second rebirth of suburban areas, and and maybe that's part of the solution. Well, I think it's also an interesting conversation about office space and mm-hmm. office landlords. Perhaps these companies will say, "Well, damn, I can I had only half my employees here, and maybe I can shed five thousand of my ten thousand square feet and still operate." Um, so this will be an interesting trial. It'll be interesting what doesn't come back. Yeah, right. Definitely. Like what? What do we get? Oh yeah, we didn't need to do that. We were. And sometimes these kind of crises make you do without, and then you do without for a while. And you're like, huh, ah, yeah, yeah, it's not so necessary. Yeah, you and I had dinner a couple of weeks ago, and months at this point, and uh, you were telling me about a hospitality concept that you that you had in mind, and how you really thought that Instagram and um, sort of that social media component is is starting to influence design and something that that hotel brands and others are really trying to bring in and think of before they start building. Can you touch on that? Yeah, so that that harks, harkens back to I was in a, one of Pinterest's first sort of user ambassadors, and when I was looking at Pinterest, the thing that would strike me, like let's say if you're if you're working on a hospitality project, and you're like, huh, well, I wonder what people in my demographic, what are their bucket list travel places? And so if you just search for all the boards that people are like, you know, ten places I want to go to before I die, 
And then you look at all the contents that's associated with those tags. And you might see things like the Louvre, or uh, you might just see a really beautiful beach in Big Sur, or uh, it might be like the glass ceiling in the Bellagio. And what I was interested in was within all those things that were aspirational and really desirable, what are the things that are the cheapest to replicate? So if people are putting the glass ceiling in the Bellagio or Venetian hotel, I can't remember which one, if they're putting that, which costs like $20 million of like custom hand-blown glass, at the, on the same list as just a swing set overlooking the beach, hmm. I want to build the swing set. That's <laughs> 500 bucks. The other one's 20 million. And just as many people, if not more, like this thing. And so you see that with like glamping. If people really want to take the picture of them in this beautiful canvas tent that's just looking out over a sunset, that actually, that experience to a lot of people is more valuable than staying at the Four Seasons. And what's easier to build, what's easier to maintain, uh, what's easy. Now, the overall audience might be smaller for that, but the margins on that are exceptional. So uh, that's how I think hospitality is going. As it relates to Instagram, I think nature is only going to get more valuable. Right, where it's the one thing we're not going to add supply of nature. Um, I mean, maybe coronavirus will contribute to that by <laughs> sort of wiping out the population, but it seems unlikely. So, when I look at like visitorship to the national parks, I see it almost directly correlating with Instagram getting more and more users. Makes sense, right? These things are are available to kind of wealthy and poor people. I'm guilty uh, of it. They are our national parks here in America are amazing. Like America's got like. If, if you ever do a road trip, just stop at as many of the national parks as you can. They're super cheap to get into. And they're all just incredible. I was just at Yosemite, just absolutely breathtaking. Dude, I went to Zion. I've never gotten more comments back on Instagram stories or posts. Exactly. Oh, that yeah. looks beautiful. Where are you? I want to do that trip. Right. It's so so we're, we were looking at land outside of these places tends to be pretty inexpensive. And there tends not to be a lot of hotels. So... When we built the shipping container house, we built it right outside of Joshua Tree National Park. And we're at about like a 85 to 90% occupancy. The only blips we have in occupancy are mostly because we have a two-night minimum. And sometimes like the days just don't line up. Mm-hmm. And we're charging like, you know, sort of like 300 uh, plus a night. So it was a project that we spent less than 200000 on that's uh, pulling in like six grand a month. It's a good cap rate. I don't know what it is yeah. off the top of my head. but Yeah, it's solid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But so that's something we're looking for in, in the future with developing more hospitality projects is how do we, and it doesn't have to be around national parks, but I think people are interested in spending the night in a beautiful farmhouse. I think, I don't think people want suburbs. I think they want real rural or real, or real dense. I think the, that's, that's the two desirable things for people under 40 uh, right now. That's cool. And I think those are the two things that I'm really interested in. How do I do affordable housing in denser and more urban places? And then how do I do these kind of getaway spots when people get overwhelmed or or fearful of their diseased uh, subway patients? Right. So just in general, how how long are you typically filming um, your YouTube each YouTube video? You know, are the lengths varying, or you know, are they typically five minutes, ten minutes, half hour? I mean, you seem to be getting into the weeds on a lot of stuff. So I'm assuming Yeah, it they're... basically is about 10 seconds per step. You know, anywhere from five to 10 seconds, right? So if I say, all right, I cut the steel with an angle grinder. Then I use put a wire brush on it and brush it off. Basically, each scene or step is five to 10 seconds long. And then the length is determined 
So I set the pace really quickly, right? To me, it's like when I turn, when I click away from a video, it's not because there's 10 more minutes or two more minutes left in the video. It has nothing to do with length. It has to do with the speed at which they're giving me information is slower than my brain. And then I get bored and then I look for the next thing and for, for something else that actually can keep up with me. So now I only focus on pace and then the length just is what it is. If I know that like the, the information is coming and you're moving right along, but not so fast that people are getting lost, I know I'm doing fine and I never worry about what the total length would be. So if it's a project that only involves like one or two materials, then it might be four or five minutes. If it involves concrete, wood, steel, paint, transportation, assembly, all those things, it might be 12 to 15 minutes long. Anyone that's trying to do content online, length doesn't matter, it's pace. And that's true, I think, for, for podcasts, for anything else. I'll listen to like a Joe Rogan episode. Sometimes it's like three hours long. And as long as the conversation is moving, like I'll, I won't click away from it. I've listened to you know, podcasts that were 20 minutes long that felt like they took forever. Hmm. So I think for anyone interested in content producing, thinking about a pace that is clear, but that is keeping the audience uh, on their toes. You were mentioning that a lot of these groups are now uh, looking at not number of likes, but how long those users have stayed engaged with the content. YouTube's probably most important criteria right now is just minutes watched. Like, are you an innings eater for them? Because from their standpoint, it makes sense. They make money when people are on their platform. Mm -hmm. The longer people are on their platform, the more ads they serve up. So whenever I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to grow in a particular channel, I just try to be empathetic to what that channel's or what that platform's goals are. If, I, if it makes sense to me that YouTube's number one goal is to be keeping people on the platform and keeping them from going to Netflix or Amazon or something like that, then I try to make content that people won't turn away from. Do we want to talk about um, the McMansions, yeah. perhaps? Yeah. Uh, I think we've all, I think we're all pretty familiar with that, but feel like they're sort of a dying breed now. Is it similar to how... You know, our generation wants to live a little more minimally, and so we're not as flashy, and therefore the McMansions are kind of part of that old school or prior generation's repertoire there. They're interesting, right? And nationally, housing sizes haven't really started dropping relative to the way family sizes have dropped, right? The thing that I think is interesting, so I grew up in uh, the Santa Barbara area of California, and... What's fascinating now, there's not a lot of uh, multifamily buildings there. So what's happened to these large suburban homes is they basically effectively become informal apartment buildings. And you see this a lot in Los Angeles, where one person will rent a, a single family house with like four bedrooms. They'll rent it for like five, you know, four to 6,000 a month, really expensive homes. And then they just sublease out individual bedrooms. This is what's happening in kind of expensive suburban areas. We looked at like a couple projects in, in areas like that where we said, huh, there aren't a lot of families, a lot of households that have, you know, enough housing budget to accommodate 5000 a month. They're probably going to buy something unless they're there for really temporary. Like they're, if they have enough money to afford that, they're probably going to elect to purchase, right? So it's like, it's hard for landlords to find renters for these things. So that's why they have to tolerate these like four separate uh, individual tenants. And so what we were thinking was like, maybe there's an opportunity to buy some of these, these McMansions that are kind of underpriced relative to their square footage and do things like, oh, let's just add 
every room that's connected to the outside, let's add some French doors or a glass door to the outside. Let's add extra, turn every bedroom into a master suite so it can be rented for the way people are actually living. And then you rent it to one person so that you're not, you know, treating single family as multifamily, which wouldn't be good. But it's up to them how they want to kind of subdivide and, and figure out those living situations in it. But the difference between having those extra entrances to the outside and that their own, everyone having their own bathroom is an extra couple hundred dollars a month, which isn't a lot overall. But when you stack that up to like four or five tenants, you might be able to get some sort of premium there, which is really hard to do in the rental market. So I think one refinement on that, which I think is a cool plan, is you should lease it. You should put 10 people's name on the lease. I don't think you'd run afoul of any zoning or, yeah. or laws. And you'd have 10 people to go after if the rent stopped getting paid. Yeah. And I think you'd be leaving some money on the table if you allowed that one person to sign the lease. And then they sort of mm. take that bit of margin for themselves by going out and finding roommates. But yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting plays like that, especially for like the the young up and coming kind of real estate hustler to think outside the box and add value that just reflects the way their friends and their peers are actually living. It's it's the same way. Invest in the things that you know. And if you're very aware that there's a a missing type of housing supply relative to your own demographic, try to figure out how to raise the money and build that. It's awesome. Hey. Why don't we jump into a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? I like it. Ben, are you familiar? Yeah. All right. I'll kick it off here. First one, podcasts. Overrated, underrated. <laughs> underrated from a advertiser's perspective. Okay. Podcasts in impact more decision-making in my life that it has monetary consequences than any other type of media. You know, if I'm watching the Super Bowl, I don't buy anything from those commercials necessarily. But if I listen to, if there's a podcast that I listen to on a weekly basis, I'm going to give Blue Apron a try. I'm going to give Butcher Box a try. I'm going to give Simply Safe a try because <laughs> it, it, the consistency of it uh, is really sticky. So um, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but I still find that I have way more consumption or way more real estate for uh, secondary focus rather than primary focus. And the ability to sort of listen to a podcast while you're driving, doing laundry at the gym, I think makes it very underrated. Very personal too. Kind of in someone's yeah. ear for an hour. You can't hate listen to a podcast. You can you can follow Skip Bayless on Twitter just to see what like a idiot he is. <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, you could follow him but not like him, right? But if you listen to someone for an hour a week, you probably you probably have some affinity to them. It's cool. Feel or better you're about just, myself. Or you're, or you're just self-abusive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ikea. Ikea is amazing. I think it's like one of the most impressive companies that, you know, they're so well vertically integrated. Uh, I think they're safe from like a, a, lot of, a lot of trends that have killed lesser companies. So it's like, if I were to compare Ikea to like Wayfair, like Ikea is a much more impressive thing start to finish. That being said, like... Uh, you know, it's a lot of melamine and particle board. And I think there's there's value there. I think if you want a glass tabletop, Ikea is by far the cheapest place to go. But I don't think their particle board furniture has much value. <laughs> you you hate particle board. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't we do a, a project where we had particle board, but it was just like higher quality particle board? I don't yeah. know. We did an Ikea kitchen in one of our projects. Well, I'm not going to count that. Ikea cabinets are fine. Like, you, you know, I, I think that's like a great 
great way to sort of upgrade something is you don't use Ikea things, but then get the countertop you actually love. And if they're just white cabinets, white cabinets are white cabinets. I mean, they're, the hardware might be a little bit different, but they have scale to make pretty good hardware at pretty affordable prices. True. Boxes are pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. So, social media here. So TikTok. Overrated relative to the amount of press that it gets. It has a very clean interface. It certainly is indicative of where it's going. But I think Facebook is such a beast that just looking at best cases and then just implementing them better. And I think they'll end up just, I think they're basically using them to kind of prove out new interfaces and then they'll just take the best of of what they do and make it better on Instagram. Tiny homes. Way overrated. What? I thought you were going to go underrated. Overrated. Because you're eliminating the value, right? When you only build a house that's entirely filled with like cabinets and built-ins and Murphy beds and all this kind of expensive construction crap, you're eliminating the cheap square footage that is used for storage. Also, it's a problem of air volume. It's like if your toilet is three feet from your stove, which is then four feet from your bed, you cook a spicy meal, you have a significant other, it's not going to be a romantic setting. Uh, and so you can, you can get really efficient with floor plan design and cabinets and built-ins and storage, all of which make it way more costly per square foot but you can't cheat air. There's only so much air and it makes it feel like you're constantly in like a road trip or uh, you know, an airplane. I think smaller homes are, are underrated, but going to the extreme becomes really dumb, right? It's like eating more vegetables is probably good for just about everybody. It doesn't mean actually going vegan is the answer that I might actually be going just a little bit too far. So definitely go smaller, but you guys know that building... Building just empty square footage is not the expensive part. It's all the it's all the detail parts. It's the kitchens and bathrooms. So when you build a house that's basically all kitchen and bathroom, you're not giving yourself any easy wins cost per square foot wise. It's great advice. Yeah, this has been great, Ben. Do you want to uh, give our listeners a little bit of a plug to best way they can find your content or reach out? Uh, if you just search my name, Ben, last name, U-Y-E-D-A, everything sort of shows up. Uh, Instagram is the best place to place to see what I'm up to on a daily basis. And then there's a whole archive of YouTube videos that if you just put in my name, they'll all pop up. Fantastic. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Any comments, uh, reach out to us. Um, We'll see everybody on the next one. Thanks everybody. Cheers. Thanks for having me.